You can actually run this on your source code, and it'll go through and try and pick up anything that looks like a binary, but also anything that looks like a component list. Hi, welcome to the Open at Intel podcast. I'm Katherine Druckmann, an open source evangelist here at Intel. This episode explores an open source software vulnerability scanner called CVE Bin Tool, and the unsung hero who maintains it. My guest is Dr. Terry Oda, a security researcher at Intel, who will tell us all about her project and the community behind it. Enjoy, and please join us again for more important open source conversations. I'm talking to Terry Oda, a security researcher at Intel and the maintainer of CVE Bin Tool, a vulnerability scanner you should go add to your project right now. We'll pause one sec. Okay, now that you've, you've uh, hit play again. I'm also joined by Chris Norman, a fellow open source evangelist at Intel, and I'm excited to really nerd out on open source security today. Thank you both for joining me for a chat. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah. So, I mean, I, we, we do want to get to business and talk about the, the actual tool that you maintain, but uh, I think we're probably going to have a lot of fun along the way. So I hope everyone uh, sticks around. But quickly, I do want to start with the basics. Um, bef but before we get into CVE bin tool itself, how would you describe the security problem that it addresses? So it, in theory, does the easiest part of security. It says... Are there any known vulnerabilities to your product? And then tells you. That's a lot easier, I hope, than figuring out whether there's unknown vulnerabilities, finding issues in code or finding, you know, this weird way you can combine things together in, in the actual uh, instance, you know, in an in actual implementation. But um, unfortunately, it turns out it's not that easy. So uh, trying to figure out what's what components you're using, trying to figure out what vulnerabilities they actually have, trying to figure out which ones have been mitigated and which ones haven't, and also which ones are just like completely spurious stuff that someone put in the database last week that is breaking all of your builds is um, more challenging than you'd think. But in theory, it's just, it tells you if you have known vulnerabilities so you can do mitigations or update components and fix them. Okay, so, how exactly does it address the? It doesn't address the vulnerabilities. It literally just tells you. It just tells you, you if them. they're there or not. Think of it. Got it. I mean, it's similar to what a virus scanner does. It tells you if there's a virus there or not, and it even does it in a sort of similar way. It uses a bunch of signatures to figure out: does this look like GCC version whatever, or does this look like something else? It's uh, a lot easier of a problem than virus scanning because virus writers are trying to hide what they are and open source projects are generally very happily telling you I am foobar123. It's it's right there in the code. So it, it should be, the, the signatures are much easier, but the concept is similar. You actually had a good analogy when you were, you were going through a cardboard box and you were lifting out. Oh, I did enjoy yeah, that. I should have brought my cardboard box for this one, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it does it in a bunch of different ways. So you can you can either have no idea what's in your mystery cardboard box, and you pull it out, and it'll try and read the serial numbers and figure out you know what is this thing, and did, did it get recalled? Or you pull something out of your cardboard box, and it's like a a spice mix, and it would then have a list of all the things that are in there, and then it would try to figure out 
which ones, right? Like a spice mix, when you pull it out, it says it has cinnamon in it, but which cinnamon, right? Like that doesn't tell me where it came from and whether it's been contaminated. And then the final way is more like a recipe book where a lot of open source projects have a recipe for building. They'd say, you know, you need to install these things and then we need to do these things. And so we get that list and figure out from your instructions. And again, like a recipe, you're going to say eggs. It doesn't say which specific brand of eggs or which specific brand of butter. So then we do the, the figuring out of what your computer would have gotten and whether that is something safe or not. So I mean, the number of, vol- the, the number of dependencies in any software application today is kind of mind boggling. I mean, it, it, it seems to be growing. I, I can't remember the stats off the top of my head, but I read something in a report generated in the past year that just the number is, is increasing several times over just on average. So it's Yeah, and we joke about it being all the fault of JavaScript because the average JavaScript I was about to say that. I was like just having a conversation. 200 components. Oh, they're all very small, right? They're, yeah. they're they're not nearly as large whereas your average C project probably has like 10 or 20. And even with um with with my Python project I have to generate a new list of dependencies. I generate actually five of them, one for each version of Python, and it generates this entire extensive list of of all the components that get updated every week. So like we're talking about something that's not a one and done. I didn't compile it, put it on a CD and ship it and then have to decide whether I need to issue a recall. We're talking something that's a ever growing, changing experience of software, unfortunately, for a lot of modern languages. I actually, so I just had this conversation earlier today talking about NPM and somebody threw, threw out the, they, they apparently had just read something about the average being something like 400. And if you get at the top percentiles of some projects have over a thousand dependents. <laughs> I can believe I just, that. I was like, how could any, how does anybody juggle this? Right. I, I mean, I've maintained open, I've been a maintainer of an open source project and I um, maybe don't want to admit how uh unfamiliar I was with just the, the sheer number of dependencies and, and and the details of each I guess but but it's it's a struggle today it's a struggle I mean how do, I, I I hear many developers all the time saying well you know well you don't really know what's in it and I'm like wait wait but you should but you should <laughs> so yeah, yeah we used I, to have a little ticky box that said uh, in order to to pass our security checks you had to prove that you had like a reproducible build of yeah. your software. And that was a requirement at Intel because it was so well, rare, certainly even, so. even there, yeah. that, 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 you know, someone somewhere was required to document how that built. But I think it's probably the norm that we don't have fully reproducible builds of any sort now. And yeah, all those, all those components. I mean, the, if you're tracking 400 components, of course, you're not going to read the vulnerability list for each and every one of them. And that's why yeah. people often miss when something becomes vulnerable and well it was a dependency of a dependency of a dependency so you know I trusted them to do it but yeah. them in I mean especially when we were reviewing when we were reviewing JavaScript components for the allow list at Intel uh, we found that a lot of them had a lot of subcomponents that were just being automated by bots like they, they had made mm-hmm. a, a little function and there was a little bot that upgraded the version periodically but like that was 80% of the commits in the last year and we're like 
is it maintained? I mean, someone wrote the bot, but the bot was the top contributor to all the products on NPM when we were investigating <laughs> them to see which ones were, you know, how, how maintained they were and how much risk we were at for that. That does not surprise me. I, I feel like I should add here. Um, when it I doesn't say, help when I... that the bot is named like Gerald or something. So it's not really <laughs> obvious that it's a bot. Like it looks like a human name. It's run under someone's account. So yeah. <laughs> oh, but Bob. Um, yeah, the the, the um, developers that I alluded to earlier, I actually are not within Intel. I thought I, I should probably <laughs> clarify that. I talked to a lot of web developer types, and yeah, anyway, but it's it it's an issue for everybody, whoever you are, and what you know, whatever your skill level, it is it's tough to keep track of this stuff. And enter enter the wonderful CVE Ben tool. Thank you very much for creating it. So, what made you create this? What, what made you start this project originally? So I didn't start it. It was actually um, my boss's boss was really pissed about um, Heartbleed. And oh, yes, yes. Versions okay. of OpenSSL everywhere. And so Are he wrote a little Python talk? script that just told you what version of OpenSSL a thing was using. And uh, we used that to remediate a bunch of errors. And then we bought additional tools. And so once we'd bought some additional tools, we'd done some remediation. He said, oh, hey, you know. You, you, you have experience in open source project development, even though we hired you as a security person. Uh, why don't you take this open source? And we, we started the process, and the immediate response we got back but was, but what if it finds something? What if it finds something in us? We're not sure we fixed everything. But, you know, a few months later, we were pretty sure <laughs> they were willing <laughs> to do it. So it, it, uh, it, it started a couple of years before you see the first open source uh, release. Okay. And since then, I mean, there were just a lot of other things that we were finding. So, like, Heartbleed was one, but then there were, like, four or five more high-profile, you know, bash things and other things. And so it, we added more and more stuff in, and then we sort of were like, we can't just keep running this as a bunch of regular expressions. We're going to have to build a framework. And so by the time it... By the time it came to the public, it was set up so you could put this in and say, hey, if you want to write a new checker for a thing with a bunch of expressions mm -hmm. and signatures, then you can just do it. And so that was the hope was we'd be able to put it out in the world and people would be able to adjust it to, to scan for the stuff that they wanted to scan. And I, I, I admit I was terrified that no one was going to be interested, but... I started with 10 checkers, and as of this morning, I think I merged our 257th, and we have, oh, wow. uh, we have one contributor right now who I think he's committed almost over 100 probably himself. Uh, he's doing... That's amazing. Thank you. This, this is one of the problems because we because we <laughs> because we're so careful about the privacy. I actually have no idea how people use this, but I can tell ah, from from what okay. we're getting that this is someone who's scanning a bunch of probably embedded Linux devices and routers. Uh, one of the test suites he uses is the OpenWRT uh, mm, package okay. list. So, so there's obviously I think I I hope we're we're fixing some networks in Europe somewhere. I don't really know. Awesome. <laughs> I was going to ask if you had a good visibility on you know how many people were actually using the tool. No, I only find out when it doesn't work for them. Uh, well, that's, that's, that could be a good sign as well. To Intel. The, the internal to Intel people often contact me with questions or, or uh, bug reports. But yeah, unless you file a bug report, we intentionally store as little information as possible. We do not want to uh, accidentally cause anyone to uh, but, but admit the, that they have a, a vulnerability that hasn't been fixed yet. <laughs> the bugs and the features can give you an indication yeah. that you know, people are out there yeah. and they're actually using it and finding... 
Yeah, and we've had um, a number of people working in um, government situations. So one of the big surprises for me was how many people wanted to run this offline because mm. they're run running it environments ah. which are not internet connected all the time, and Sticking they want it. to keep. Yeah, so yeah. so they literally have to sneakernet with a with a USB to to get the initial database and then and then run it run scans in a in a protected lab or environment. And it Who works. What, what that is, yeah, but it, it works right. Like that's perfect. that's something you can do, and you can manually yeah. update it, or you can you know use a slightly older database. If you're on a lab that's offline, it's probably not getting the latest updates. So maybe last week's database is fine for you. So I did notice in your documentation that you can use the tool offline. And I did actually wonder what kind of scenarios would require offline usage. So th that does make sense. You're kind of like air gapped, high security, <laughs> as you say, yeah, sneaker net. I think a lot of... I think some of the reasons are more mundane. the the uh, The biggest challenge to running the tool this week is that NVD is changing the the format they use for the the known vulnerabilities, mm. and so their system. I I don't know who designed it, but it doesn't have mirrors or anything or any sort of redundancy. So it just goes offline. It just drops ah, entirely. Okay. So we use a we we the. Our, our tool gives you a cache, right? It, it's set mm -hmm. up so that you can do it offline and it only updates it once a day by default because that's about how often NVD actually works. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish that were not true, but it, but we've, we've had some problems this week. So yeah, I suspect some of that is, some of the people who are excited about having it offline are just having mundane problems with NVD rate limiting them. So oh, especially okay. when especially when you're running in GitHub Actions and there's 20 bazillion people running in GitHub Actions at the same time, NVD is like, what? Is this an attack? Shut it all out. So it's uh, been a bit of a problem. Uh, one of these days, we will figure out a way to cache that data or convince someone else to provide a high quality, you know, mirror of it. It's funny. I mean, in open source, we handle all this by, by mirroring. Like, you, you mirror entire Linux distros and it's no big deal, but this particular data isn't done that way. So this this is a common usage model where you're running it as a GitHub action then. Yeah, I think. In fact, we we actually had a uh, one one of our contributors pulled up some some graphs to show what versions of Python people are using, and he was expecting to get the result that most people would be using 3.11, the most recent one. It's been out for a couple of months. People should have upgraded. Mm -hmm. But what we actually saw is it's almost all people using 3.8, except for up until September there were people using 3.7 that just dropped off the map. And so what we think is happening is that the vast majority of downloads are people in GitHub Actions using the default Ubuntu setup. And so uh. we think September is probably when you turned off 18.04. So, which is good. I mean, that's exactly where we want people to use it, right? A, a lot yeah. of the similar tools that are available, either they're really expensive or they're just so slow. Like some of the scans that uh, we, we've tested out take four to eight hours to run. And so people couldn't do it in something like GitHub Actions where the free version kicks you out after some, some amount of, of time. Mm. So this, in theory, when, when NVD is behaving, takes two to five minutes to download the whole database and then you can just run it. So then people aren't maybe as motivated as they could be to, <laughs> to cache it all. So you just, you install the latest version of the tool, you yeah. download it, you run it and it works. And then you dump the whole, whole VM except for the, the, the results you got. So. 
Well, that's good. Yeah, I, I could see how you might run into some kind of developer experience issues if if the feedback loop is many, many, many hours. It might. Uh, it might yeah, I mean that's the biggest problem. problem. Is like when when people were scanning like a whole download site, right? Like if you were imagining all of the open source products at Intel were in a single download directory and you scanned it, and they tried to scan it, you know, you, some of these things, some of the projects that I've seen people work on, they tried to scan it daily with other tools and they couldn't get results. It took a week to scan that many binary files. That's just how big they are. So this, mm -hmm. in part because it detects less, right? Like a, a commercial tool, I would expect to have probably over a thousand different signatures and we've got 200. So you can do it in 20 minutes easily. <laughs> For, for most things. And even a full distro doesn't take that long. It's just a matter of how long it takes to unpack all those gzipped files or whatever. It, 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 so we're often disk limited rather than, or internet limited rather than anything else. So you mentioned there were some other scanners that people might be using. I, I think Google just came out with one, didn't they, in the last couple months? Yeah, and there's a lot of language-specific ones. So like NPM has, has one, and I've seen, I think, Maybe it's pipenv. There, there, there are some for Python. The, the one that, that I used to use was uh, Python safety. And some of those are interesting models. So safety, for example, if you aren't paying for a, a subscription, then they give you a month-old database of mm -hmm. vulnerabilities. So good enough. I mean, it's better than, than nothing. But, but nothing, in, yes. in, in some cases, your free tools are not... 24 hours ago, whatever the data was that we can provide. So, so I, I, I would actually like to go a little bit more into the, the topic of incorporating this into your continuous integration system. But before we do that, I wanted to make sure, you know, just in case there are new developers listening, we should probably uh, maybe go into what a CVE is a little bit. Like, how would you describe a CVE to those just getting started in their security awareness journey? So a CVE is a one of many, but basically the most popular format for describing a known vulnerability. It stands for I think it's common vulnerabilities and oh, I exposures. Know I think exposures. Thank exposures. you. Exposures. Yes. It's it's always hard to remember whether it's exposures or exploits. It's not exploits. It's exposures. So it describes what the problem is, what components are vulnerable, and often has information about how to mitigate it. All sort of lumped into a nice consumable format. And the, the NVD that I talked about is the National Vulnerability Database, which is a terrible name because it's an international vulnerability database, but it's handled by the U.S. NIST uh, group. So it's, uh, it's run by the U.S. government. So that's why it got the name. And it is basically available to anyone aside from the problems of actually downloading it uh, while they're, while they're uh, <laughs> modifying their, their system. But uh, we, we use that one. We also have um, some additional vulnerability database from Red Hat. They provide information about the things they find. And for those who aren't familiar, Red Hat is the one who files most of the CVEs against open source projects. Uh, they for, for a long time, it was very hard for any random project 
to just say, I have a vulnerability, here's, you know, fill in the paperwork and, and upload it. I, I worked with GNU Mailman, which has their own vulnerability filing stuff, but a lot of smaller projects, they didn't have that. So they'd go through Red Hat. So, uh, so Red Hat's vulnerability database has a huge number of, of interesting things and, and mitigations specific to, to their platform, but it's also bigger than just their platform. And then we've got one from GitLab and one from, I think it's GitHub is starting one and one that's provided through Google, the open source vulnerability one, which is meant to be an aggregator, but um, what exactly is in it sort of changes. And it was meant to be an easier way to file your vulnerabilities with, without having to go and get a vendor set up with, with NVD and do all that. It used to be really hard to to file these things, and that was part of the the challenges of the vulnerability system: is that people would just never file them because they had no idea how, or they they you know, someone would say, "Well, tell Red Hat, and Red Hat will file it for you," and Red Hat would say, "Well, we're not <laughs> shipping your stuff, so we can't file against it," and then it would just fall off the radar. So so yeah, just filing them is interesting, but yeah, there's there's the one big database and then several smaller databases that uh, we had a Google Summer of Code student this year integrate all the new databases that are that are set up in there for, for us. Going back to the CI CD question. So so how how easy is it to include this into your maybe existing uh, continuous integration system? So if you're already using something like GitHub Actions that lets you just sort of get give a bunch of instructions, uh, we have someone who's been working on an actual GitHub action script, but most people go and they, they, they write their instructions, pip install CVE bin tool, CVE bin tool, and then the name of the directory. And that's it. Cool. That is perfect. That's, uh, there's no reason to not hit pause right now and go add this to your project is what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah, well, I say that, but, but uh, if you want it to run really fast, then you also need to go and get a key from NVD to make sure you don't get rate limited, which takes a little bit longer. But okay. even that, three commands instead of two. Fa fabulous. So I also want to make sure, again, everybody listening gets the, gets the full picture here. And, and it does have, it's a, it has a ton of options for scanning binaries with SBOMs, JSON or, or CSV output. Um, and then it also has flexible output options. So you can you can kind of make it into whatever you need it to be. And I wondered, you know, if there's a recommended out of the box configuration or have you ever seen it used in, a, in an unexpected way that you weren't anticipating? I wonder, I mean, obviously flexibility is, is key for incorporating it into as many projects as possible, but I just wondered if you could speak to that a little bit. The, the one that surprised me first was the time when someone were like, well, our CI system just, we, we don't want it to print any logs. We want it to be completely quiet and just tell me whether it passed or failed, which I have no idea huh. what, what system that is, where, where that was, was the preferred manner, because I would have thought you'd want the details about which components had things, but they, they did that. The other one that was a surprise to me is we had, <laughs> we had a team that because they were they wanted to set it up for a whole bunch of different uh, different groups different products and they weren't too sure what all the products would want so they were generating all of the possible reports as you said there's like four different types that people yeah. are likely to want and a couple of older ones that they're Human less likely and to want machine readable yeah. yeah and so they were generating them all but they in order to do this they were just scanning it four times in a row and and then we're sad because sometimes it ran out of time. Got different answers. 
Yeah, well, and, and sometimes it gets different answers because yeah, if you if you if you get it to get new new vulnerability Updates data, the then it, yeah. yeah. So so they came to me with this bug saying, uh, "Why does it sometimes give us different answers, and why does it sometimes time out?" And I was like, "What are you? We we can just make it generate all the types of report in one run. That'll solve that problem." And so it was really easy, right? Someone someone <laughs> just put put another option in the in the tool chain, but like it had never occurred to me that that would be useful. But of course, it makes sense, right? Like you often want a human to be able to read the report and sort of dig down and see around, but you also want to be able to automatically update all these components. And having yeah. it in a JSON format really helps. Yeah, I feel like we have a lot of different formats, but. At this point in time, uh, the U.S. government last year declared that people were going to be better at cybersecurity. Yes, and, because that's how you solve it. You just yeah, say that well, we're going to do mean, it. it is, and, yeah. It's the first I'm step. Part of the step. Yeah, it's part of it. <laughs> it's I, the first step. But as a result, every month or so, there's a new format of, you know, I want my things in this other vulnerability exchange format or I want to be able to read like SBOMs that that was not a thing when we started even mm. though they existed nobody used them for vulnerability scanning until the government said well you're gonna have to produce an SBOM and you're gonna have to produce a vulnerability scan and everyone said well why don't we just put those two things together and maybe you know then I won't have you know an SBOM that doesn't match my vulnerability scan for the same reasons we had with the multiple it was scanning it multiple times right after the other is sometimes the data changes in between so yeah, it's. Uh, I feel like it's a little bit overwhelming, but it's been really interesting seeing all the different formats and all the different things that people need. Right when when I when I first learned about S bombs, it was all about software licensing, mm -hmm. and to suddenly be told, "Well, we want you to generate the S bomb," like, but we don't give you any licensing data, and people were like, "But we don't care, just generate the S bomb." Like, yeah. don't you have priorities have shifted? <laughs> don't you have better <laughs> tools for that? And they're like, um, no. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, they're, they're, yeah. So, what we were finding was not the same as what their other tools were finding, and they wanted to be able to compare them. And then we discovered that S bombs didn't have any diffs. So, actually, one of our contributors wrote an S bomb diff tool, which we use extensively <laughs> to see, you know, what what changes. And uh, yeah, so I guess the surprising part to me is just how rapidly things are changing and how yeah. people, since we don't know what the best, you know, what, what do we need to save for audit? What do we want to know? Right. It's, it's, it's a moving target. On the other hand, that's really great for our new contributors because it means there's a lot of, can you just tweak this format a little bit? Can you tweak that format a little bit? So we often have a lot of, a lot of easier bugs that are like, just add this field to this report, <laughs> which is always nice because we take part in uh, Google Summer of Code and also Hacktoberfest and finding bugs that are small enough for people to do on a fairly well-established project can be a big challenge. So we're cursed and lucky that we have a lot of opportunities <laughs> to yeah. uh, to do small tweaks for, for, the, the pe for things that people are using that I wouldn't have done myself. Actually, that, that, I'm glad you bring that up because that's something I definitely wa wanted to ask you about. So you do get a lot of contribution from things like you mentioned Google Summer of Code, Hacktoberfest. How does the contribution differ when you're when you're looking at a sort of an event-driven, dedicated situation versus just the kind of ongoing maintenance? How do you how do you balance the two? You must get a ton of contributors, all you know, and, and kind of 
spurts and then you and then you have the, the everybody else is around the rest of the year yeah i can't do any releases in october ever again now that i've started <laughs> doing Oktoberfest. it just completely obliterates all of my time in in merging pull requests uh, uh i i i i'm doing a part-time schedule because of the pandemic right now and uh yeah it just obliterates what time i have for merging pull requests i set aside a few hours a week and when you have that many small small things and not just that they're small but they're new contributors so there's mm-hmm. often we need you to change you know add some comments here or change this or this approach doesn't work i am getting incredibly good at writing uh better bugs than than i was i mean i got my start in open source with gnu mailman and with writing a lot of the the documentation used for this mailing list tool that's that that uh, mm-hmm. at one point was the most popular one around the yeah. world and uh, so understanding how people use it was really important. But like the depths I have learned from from trying to make user friendly beginner bugs has been very different. It's a very different experience to see how to explain the code in different ways. And uh, it's really beneficial to me, honestly. That's the thing I love about Google Summer of Code. I, I always snarkily tell projects that the biggest advantage is that it forces you to update your documentation once a year. But it's true. <laughs> it forces you to update your documentation, plus you get a dozen people in the first week who fix your documentation for you because they're like, I didn't understand this. You 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 changed your test scripts and this one works better now. I need this extra flag. And it's really good. I mean, people find really great things, but it does take like, October is basically a write-off and usually January and February, I'm training up a whole bunch of incoming Google Summer of Code. Um, they used to be students, but now they're, they can be any contributor over 18. And once I've I've explained to enough of them the the you know the format that we expect our commit messages in and where to find the documentation, then they help everyone else. So it's really amazing, but it's always really rough for those first couple of weeks while I train the you know explain explain the things that I forgot to put the documentation and everyone gets to know. You know, contributor documentation is long. People miss stuff. So yeah, <laughs> once- no, it's tough. It's tough and, and it, it's hard. It's always hard when you're, when you, when you have a certain expertise, it's hard to write for people who are just absolute beginner, beginners because it's so impossible to put yourself in that mindset. I think once you're. Yeah. Once you've been doing one of the so fun things about getting people from Hacktoberfest is have, some of them have no idea what a security vulnerability is. So, mm. you know, they just yeah, have right? no concept and, of what this tool does. It's just, it was on the Hacktoberfest list and it looked like it was going to be short. So. You know. Yeah, that's a good reminder. So yeah, it's it's fun though. It gives me an excuse to try out all of my different explanations so that I can be prepared for my next conference talk. I hope. Yeah, that's all. <laughs> as Chris said, that's why I was trying out my my box of stuff explanations. Oh yeah, yeah. We'll yeah. See if, Are you going to we'll see if props? that one? Yeah. yeah, we'll see how that one works out well with the uh, next one. I love it. I'm disappointed because I gave a talk on AI and I got you to use stuffed doggies and I haven't found a way to work stuffed doggies into security uh, <laughs> training oh, yet, but okay, I'm we'll have to think it. of that one. Well, you know, hey, listener feedback. If anyone can think, <laughs> think of a way to incorporate stuffed doggies. I think that's... Uh, into a CV. I like it. Um, so, you know, I wanted to, you know, again, go back to to using the, the tool and, and because... Hey, that's what it's for. We hope everyone uses it. It makes the world a better place, a safer place, right? Um, but every every wonderful tool has limitations. 
could you tell us a little bit about that? Like it, in very you know, layman's terms, I suppose, but what, what does it not solve? What problems does it solve versus what, what does it not solve? So it doesn't, it doesn't scan your code for you and tell you whether your code is bad, right? It only can tell you about things that people have found and that people have filed. So as I said, filing vulnerabilities was a bit of a challenge and it's possibly going to be more of a challenge in the future as there's a major government incentive to never have mm -hmm. CVEs filed against your product. So I'm hoping that that doesn't mean that anyone says, oh, well, we'll just mark that as a P2 bug instead of a P1 bug because our policy for P1 bugs is too hard, but mm. I won't be shocked if it means we don't have as good vulnerability data for a little while while people sort out what what's the ethical and what's the financial best choice for their company. So mm. yeah, so we can't do anything if you don't file a CVE. We can't do anything if uh, if you don't have any clue what's in your software. Sometimes we can't figure it out. And we can't do much if you're trying to obfuscate your software. So people sort of talk about, you know, can we use this as a tool for uh, doing, doing security analysis of a system? And it just relies on you saying this is potato one, two, three. If you change it to say this is not potato one, two, three, then it's not going to work. So it's uh, very brittle to that sort of change. We sort of don't want to be a vulnerability scanning tool or a, a um, security pen testing tool in that way. So I'm not too worried about it, but uh, it would be useful if we could do both. And we just don't know how. Maybe someone with a really cool AI system will be able to like mm. scan all those public repos and, and build, build vulnerability maps if you don't tell me what your version is. But um, yeah, nobody's done it yet. Maybe, maybe yeah. that one will be someone's, uh, someone's grad school project later. I'm glad you mentioned pen testing because it is it is a, a different this is a very different type of thing this type of scan it, it, it's a completely different animal than than looking for vulnerabilities through penetration testing yeah and i mean it could be used for penetration testing if you're talking about you know just checking over a system that you don't think anyone has tampered with but it wouldn't be great if someone was trying to obfuscate what's in right. there it's probably a good point to to give a shout out for the the way you can get cv bin so it's on our github.com slash intel slash cv bin tool, uh, cv dash bin dash tool. And it's, it's pinned from our homepage as well, github.com slash intel. Yeah, that reminds me, I should, I should point out that it's, it's a goofy name now, because when, when we originally did this, it scanned binaries only. Uh, hence CV binary tool. It told you if there were CVEs in your binary, but now we can take a whole bunch of other formats. Mm. So you can actually run this on your source code and it'll go through and try and pick up anything that looks like a binary, but also anything that looks like a component list. So one of my fun things to do is to run CV bin tool on itself because first <laughs> it, it'll scan for my own Python components and um, we have a couple of JavaScript components that are used for generating reports. So it'll scan those. But then when it gets to the test directory, it tells me I have thousands and thousands and thousands of bugs because all of the components in there are designed to trigger my scanner. That's funny. So <laughs> if you ever want to want to you know startle someone, you can try running it on on its own directory. Mm -hmm. So I've been talking about um, with with the incoming students whether we could sort of set it up to to generate known vulnerability data on like the top 100 
GitHub projects, but we'll probably have to avoid scanning people's test directories lest we do the same thing as we do to ourselves. <laughs> and it's a, it's a, it's it's even a problem in Intel's own policies. One of our one of our scanners checks for for known vulnerabilities and sends me angry emails every month or every week or every day uh, saying you have a bunch of vulnerabilities, but we don't have vulnerabilities. We just have a bunch of files describing we have signatures. Have no, <laughs> we have yeah. we have signatures and we have you know lists of Ruby gem files or cargo lock from Rust files saying these things have vulnerabilities that we can test. So it's, um, I'm a little sensitive to uh, what what we'll get when we scan other people's things is, are we going to get the same? Do they also have, you know, static? This this is the special setup we use to build our our, uh, our docs and only our docs. And, you know, maybe, maybe it's vulnerable, but who cares? It's done offline once in a while. So are we using it for our own dog food or are we, are we using it internally? Yeah, we we're we're using it in a bunch of different places, including um there's there's a there's a whole integration tool that sets up a bunch of automation for Intel's internal tools. And we're we're also using it on some of our external open source projects where they didn't want to set up our internal scanners because you can't run that in GitHub public and you can't mm -hmm. share some, some of the, some of the uh, licensing requirements don't allow us to share vulnerability data with external partners. So if you're working with external partners, you need a different scan to show them to, to talk about issues that have been found and things that need updated, which is, uh, which is good because sometimes your vulnerability is just this third party component still hasn't updated something and you need to tell them. <laughs> so right. being able to say, look, hey, look, here. <laughs> look, look you, you, you forgot to update Zlib or whatever it is. You right. know, here's here's a pull request, but also here's a tool that you can use to avoid getting getting emails from people saying, "Hey, you forgot to update this thing." You could you could scan it yourself. So that was one of the original hopes was that we'd be able to give it to open source uh, groups and say, you know, you don't have to wait for us to do scans or wait for, you know, someone to write a bot that does it for you. We we have the the tool available to you. So, what is your what does your your wish list look like? What do you where do you go from here? What are you hoping to to add to the project? So right now, as I said, uh, because of the U.S. government mandate and similar ones in Europe and, and other places, uh, the biggest wish list is supporting new formats that people are trying to work mm -hmm. with, uh, improving the tools for SBOM scanning. We can scan an SBOM, but we can't say combine two SBOMs and deduplicate them, which is a big oh, okay. issue yeah. because um, across a whole lot of languages, you're going to have this Python JSON yeah, parser and the C JSON parser. And sometimes they all have the same names or sometimes they're all referring to things that work with this, you know, like there's a system D library that, that connects here, but there, then there's the main system D library. So there, there's a lot of that. And then some of them just have names that, that aren't the same. So it's common, especially for Python projects to have a name in PyPI and then a name in the distro. So my, my favorite example is Beautiful Soup, which is an HTML parsing <laughs> library that we use. And you could get, it, it could be called Beautiful Soup. It could be Beautiful Soup 4. It could be Python-BS4. It could be Python-Beautiful Soup. It could be Python-BS. You know, I, I don't know. And and uh, there's, there's four that I absolutely know about and a few more that people may or may not have used. And then getting all of that to map directly can be a challenge. So looking at how to improve the quality of our SBOMs, I think is going to be really interesting. That's maybe not an essential for CVE bin tool, but it's going to be an essential for the whole world that wants to provide these. 
and then the triage of it. So we're we're we get these scans. What now? That's that's often like that's that's the number one FAQ question we get is I found a vulnerability. What do I do? And then the easy thing is oh well you fix it you you know you update that component and then your scans come clean. But what if you can't update that component? The the example that's popular right now is the Zlib that's being used by Microsoft that they they have declared it's not vulnerable. So like where do I put that data so that my scans don't show it up as constantly nagging mm. me to update these things? So we have a triage system that was that was built before people had an idea of what that was going to look like, and we're hoping to update it to use the various versions of VEX, uh, which is a vulnerability exchange format. So I can't remember all their names yet because we haven't uh, we haven't worked with them in great detail, but uh, building that up and then figuring out how to help people triage that, get the data they need, you know, is this supposedly mitigated? Is this a never going to be fixed sort of thing? People often think uh, when they're making these policies that you're going to be able to get to zero vulnerabilities, but that's not usually the case. Uh, sometimes it's a matter of waiting while you're while you're waiting for someone to update. You know, it's a new vulnerability, but some number of vulnerabilities are not solvable. So we have one in a component we use called Report Lab, which says basically the vulnerability is it is possible to put images into PDFs. And the people who built the tool were like, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like, the, it, you can see that, like, if you were putting a, a, a surprise one in, it could be used for tracking or something. So you have to use the appropriate mitigations to avoid putting one in from evil.com or whatever. But, like, there's no fix for that. And there's never going to be a fix for that. And unless people are aggressively lobbying to get these downgraded, then it's just going to show up in your scans forever. <laughs> so there's a lot of how to communicate when vulnerabilities won't be fixed, why they aren't being fixed, how, whether they're being mitigated or whether they're spurious. Like th there's, there's some number of them we see uh, fairly regularly. I, I think probably... Between the scans that I do in my role as a product security expert at Intel and the scans that we do regularly on CV Bintool itself, I'd say at least once a month, I see one that is just someone filed something, it turns out to be incorrect, and they just get it removed. But meanwhile, you have a week of, we can't ship our product because everyone has to agree that this thing needs to just be left out of the thing. So making that easier for people to document and track and see to, to make better policy about, you know, we can't have a zero tolerance for vulnerabilities in some cases. So yeah. one of the funnest ones for, for, for uh, people who haven't experienced it is the Linux kernel. Uh, <laughs> there is no lit version of the Linux kernel that has zero vulnerabilities at any given time. And uh, one, one of my colleagues uh, did, did some research. And if you're looking at a whole somewhat minimal Linux distribution, he said there were two days a year, if you excluded the kernel, that there were no vulnerabilities in any possible component. So, um, yeah, if you're saying at that, that time, at that, at time. that time, yeah, at that <laughs> yeah. time, there was two days in the, the year worth of data that he parsed that you would be allowed to ship, ship a Linux distribution without any vulnerabilities. So helping people manage, you know, continuous fixing and continuous scanning and continuous navigating these waters is going to be 
really, really important. And I'm not sure that people quite understand how bad it's going to be yet because they just, a lot of people are just starting their scanning journey. Well, um, I guess, is this the place where we say, but it could be made a lot easier? <laughs> I hope, I hope. Yes. I mean, <laughs> to be fair, it's a lot easier if you just don't scan and you have no idea. But uh, yeah. we, we're, we're long past that point in this world. Yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah. We, need, we need to be able to scan and we need to make policies, security policies based on educated, inform, informed decisions about what we do and don't find. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think the, the, the moral of that story is to, you know, use the right tools. And, 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 when, you're in, and when you find a great tool, contribute to it. Help, help improve it. Because, um, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. that's made a huge difference for us. Uh, as I said, we started with, with 10 things that we could scan. It was like OpenSSL and Curl and Zlib and a few others. And we're now over 250. And on top of having them, we've got like a little tool that just generates them for you. So like if you if you have a couple of versions of something in Debian packages, it'll try to scan them and guess. And then you need a human to look through and say, okay, that message isn't going to be enough it's going to cause false positives but uh we've got a lot of tooling to to make it easier that's one of the things that new contributors can often do is just choose a random linux package that we don't detect yet and see whether they could make it so i love it well but if there if there's a one main takeaway here i hope it's that it's that all the developers out there listening, I hope to you know, will will scratch their own itch and contribute back to the to CVE bin tool. Um, or tell me how you use it. Honestly, that's that's the other yeah, thing. Okay. That, uh, that uh, as I said, since we intentionally uh, adhere to the highest standards of pri privacy, I have no idea how people use it or what features they need unless they tell me. So you know, try it out and tell me if it doesn't work for you just as much as when it does is really helpful. Yeah. It certainly generates lots of uh, opportunities for our Hacktoberfest and uh, Google Open Source. Uh, I want to say kids, but they're not kids. Uh, young adults who are, who are coming into the program and are looking for something something to, that they can work on. Well, I think uh, we all we all appreciate all of that, all of all of your effort, all of their effort, because you know, without things like this, imagine imagine how much more difficult it would be to keep yourself. Well, I don't have to imagine. I lived through it. That's why there I got go. involved in this project. Was the there the the go. early the early efforts we had on on vulnerability management and and seeing how that worked were challenging. It's uh, this is a lot easier, and we can probably make it easier still if we. I just don't know how yet, but we'll figure it out. Well, thank you. Thank you both. Thank you, Terry, for, for telling us, you know, for educating me more about CVE Ventool and, and, you know, by extension, everybody listening. Thanks. It's, it's a project I wish we didn't have to have and we had no vulnerabilities and everything was perfect, but uh, that's not the world we live in. <laughs> so, I yeah. mean, that's, that's how I got interested in security. It's, it's never perfect and we build the tools to make it easier. And thank you, Chris, for joining us as well. Uh, absolute pleasure.